All right, I want to talk to you today about your story in the light of his story. Often we talk in, in Christians, and I uh, understand that I work in a Pentecostal environment, and so we're pretty big on, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I don't need to project with this mic, do I? <laughs> you can probably turn it down because I'll just get you know, excited and I'll speak too loud. Uh, you know, for I know the plans of, I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and and a lot of us will, you know, pick up that verse and we grab it and we hold it and, you know, we tattoo it on our arms and stuff, you know, I know people have done that. And we kind of grab this one piece of scripture and then we just claim that this is for me as an individual. And what happens is we, we misunderstand that your story and my story only makes sense and only has purpose in the light of his story. And that's the theme that I want to bring out um, today. Now... One common literary, you know, technique with novels is this thing called self-insertion, and Victor Hugo did it in Les Mis, and it's basically where the author of the book puts himself in as a character of the book. Uh, how many of you have read that book or seen the movie or, you know, a couple of you? Okay. Um, and it's not uncommon. Like, Dante did it in the, um, in the Divine Comedy, and uh, Stephen King did it in a couple of his horror books. Um, puts himself in the story. But it's an old idea because, of course, God did that as well. He's got this book called the Bible. He puts himself in it. Um, but the difference is that in uh, Les Mis, um, you know, Victor Hugo is a minor role. When it comes to the Bible and the story of uh, the world and where we are today, the main character is, in fact, Jesus Christ, not us. And I think that's something that we really, really forget in our day and age. It's all about us, it's all about individualism, it's all about, I want Jesus to bless me and to be on my side, I want him to do my will, <laughs> you know what I mean? Dear God, can you do this, this and this and this? And the whole thing is back to front, it's like we think we can use God as a means um, and, and that he's a means for our success and our you know, great things in life, when actually we need to be at his feet saying, you are my master, what do you want me to do? Not the other way around, you know, and sometimes I think we direct God because we've forgotten that our story only makes sense in the context of his, whereas we think that our story is the most important and his story is back down here in the background. We've got to get it right way around. To give an example of how a story doesn't make sense, if you've watched Lord of the Rings, Schmeagol or Gollum, if you watch Lord of the Rings, his character, if you just removed the whole context of the story... I mean, it's just a sad tale of misery, really. Here's a, you know, a hobbit who gets obsessed with a ring, um, chases the ring his whole life, dies in a volcano. Woo! Great. You know, let's write a novel just about Gollum. He was a man who chased after a ring and kept chasing it even into the fire. <laughs> and he died. His life, in the context of Lord of the Rings, has no purpose. It doesn't make sense even. It's just a weird, weird thing of you know, someone getting just obsessed with something and, and it killing them. Everything that happens to them doesn't make sense unless you understand the ring and Frodo and, and Mordor and, and all the characters in there and his whole purpose. He actually plays a fundamentally crucial role in this big story and without, without Gollum, Frodo doesn't get the ring to Mordor. But if you don't understand the ring and, and Frodo, Gollum's life doesn't make sense. Your life and my life won't make sense unless our eyes are on Jesus and not on ourselves. We'll end up becoming a golem or a smeagol, chasing after the wind if we don't realise that there's actually something far bigger going on. Are you with me? 
Good. Um, so what I want us to understand is that the purpose of your life and my life will be confused unless we understand the story that we're in, our context in history. There's this kind of meta-narrative going on here that, that you and I live within. And so I want to do a sort of a brief overview of that story and then look at how it applies to us here and now today. Now, a lot of this is not going to be new. It's just going to be an overall summary, like here's human history and, th- and this is what's going on. So, a little bit of uh, Bible history. Of course, God created the heavens and the earth. Good news. People like to debate that, um, whether or not God did or not, or whether he exists and all of that. Um, and I won't go into all the arguments for and against. But fundamentally, you and I are created by God, and so is this earth. We are created in God's image, which gives every human life infinite value, uh, whether you're functional or not, whether you're 100% can do everything, uh, or whether there's only half of you or you're paraplegic that you can't do anything, uh, you're actually lying in hospital with completely incapacitated. You are valuable because you are in the image of God. Human life is intrinsically valuable no matter how much it functions. Does that make sense? Because of this, because we're in the image of God, because God created us, he saw all that he made and he saw that it was good. So God creates this perfect world, a world where the human body was actually created to live to, uh, forever. And you sort of think, well, how can that work? It's really interesting that even right now, every cell in your body right now is not more than 10 years old. Now, of course, you're 10 years old, <laughs> you're more than 10 years old, but the cells in your body aren't. And that's because your body regenerates all the time. So the idea of humans living far longer than we do is not unreasonable. It's just that the nature of sin and, and the breakdown in the body means that we don't regenerate perfectly and as a result, um, we eventually die. So it's not an unreasonable thing. God actually created human life um, to live forever. But then we have this tragic thing, of course, that happens, which is the fall. There's some strategically placed leaves there in that photo yet again. But uh, I'm not sure that Adam would have done that just quietly, but uh, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> The story of the fall, I think, is a fantastic illustration of how temptation works in our, in our world today. You know, the first thing that the devil says is, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Is it really that bad? Is it really such an issue? And it puts the, the seed of doubt into Eve's mind. Interesting as well that it was God who told Adam not to eat from the tree of the garden before Eve was even created. So Eve's not just distrusting God, she's also distrusting Adam's word. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? And so then, the, the first thing is, did God really say it? Then it's, if you do this, it will be great. You're going to be like God. And then she actually goes and she commits sin. Now, exactly the same thing happens. I watch it in my kids at school. You know, oh, is alcohol really that bad? You know, I mean, is drunkenness such a big issue? You know, it starts off with questioning whether or not it's that bad. The next thing is, oh, all my mates are doing it and they're having a great time. It's good. You know, and then the third step, of course, is they follow through. I mean, this... This pattern can be seen in nearly every temptation that goes on. The first thing is questioning whether it's really a problem. The second thing is, no, it's actually good, and then we do it. But of course, the consequences of the fall are tragic, and there's this curse, and it means that we, you know, the reality is that we die. And then from that point on, the whole Bible, from really chapter 3 right until the end of Revelations, is this story of God saving man. Everywhere you read, and it doesn't matter where you go in the Bible, somewhere in there, it's God redeeming man. From the fall on, God redeeming man. One theme in the whole Bible is God saving man. You with me? Making sense? Good. 
Now, God does this right throughout Scripture and he uses different people to do it. I think my notes might be out of order. No, that's all right. Uses different people to do it. But first, you have to recognize that man actually needs saving to start with. And one of the biggest problems in our world today is this whole mentality of you're okay, I'm okay, moral relativism, if, if that's what you want to do, that's up to you. Morality is individual, changeable, it's subjective. Why do I need God anyway? And so relativism has actually made God irrelevant. Can you see that? Because if you're okay and I'm okay, why do I need Jesus to save me? What's he saving me from? My life is fine. And so the first revelation that every human being needs in any period in history, but in the West more so now than ever, is you and I are sinners and we are, just like that person there, we are stuffed unless God saves us. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We've sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've got it wrong, we're separated from God. We need him to save us. And so one of the biggest things I believe right now in our Western world is that we need people to see the seriousness of sin and we actually need Jesus to save us. Fair call? So look at how God redeems man throughout the Bible. We'll just do a, a fast overview. The first thing that happens, well, the first covenant is this covenant with Abraham where God says to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. All the people on earth will be blessed through Abram. So that promise there is really through Abram, God is going to save man. And there's all these key people in history that God uses to save man, to redeem mankind to himself. This is the first example of it, right? So if you go a quick overview of the Old Testament then, you've got Moses... God uses Moses to save man. Then he uses Joshua to save man. Then you've got these judges. You've got Samuel. You've got Gideon. You've got Samson. Then you have the kings. You've got Saul. And then he goes pear-shaped. And you've got David. You've got Josiah. You've got all these kings that do the wrong thing. And because the kings are doing the wrong thing, then the prophets are sent in by God to redeem Israel. And the whole story, no matter where you read, it's God redeeming Israel or it's redeeming the world through Israel right through the Old Testament. So when Israel's on track, the whole purpose of Israel is that it can be a blessing to the world. You saw that, that covenant with Abram. Through you, I will bless the world. But then Israel gets off track, and so he sends these prophets back saying, guys, repent of your sin. You're supposed to be a blessing, and you can't be a blessing while you're dallying in sin. And this whole thing goes on. God redeeming man, God redeeming man. The prophets come, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah. Um, anywhere in the Old Testament, God redeeming man. Cool? This is the story. Now, the main character of the story, it, it reaches its climax in Jesus Christ. And what I think is fascinating is right through the Old Testament, I've just picked a few out, there are, there, there are these prophecies and these little verses that say there is someone coming. There is someone coming that's greater than Abraham, someone coming greater than Moses, someone coming greater than David. Everyone look back to David. How good was Israel when David was leading it? But there's someone coming who is better than David. Genesis 3, verse 15, the first reference specifically to Christ, where he says, it's in the middle of the curse, you know, they've just had the fall, and God curses the serpent, and he says, he talks about this, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is Jesus, it's reinterpreted in the New Testament. 
Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of greatness, of his government of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. This is 700 years before this Messiah comes. 700 years, already talking about this main character. It's like watching a movie where the main character doesn't roll up until you know, two hours into it. It's one of those four-hour epic movies. You're thinking, when's something going to happen? And finally, Jesus rolls up. Now, there's a few more of these. In Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, uh, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. It's Christ. Isaiah 53, He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's the whole story of the gospel. And then when Jesus finally comes, there's all, this circular, there's all this questioning from the Jews. Is this this Messiah that Isaiah was talking about, that Micah was talking about, that Deuteronomy was talking about? Is this the guy that we've been talking about? Because he doesn't fit the picture that we thought. You know, they're thinking, this guy's going to be like a David who's going to come and, and bring out this huge kingdom, make Israel the greatest nation in the world. You know, it was going to be the new America. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of mindset they had, wasn't it? You know, it was like, this guy's going to come and he's going to be the great king. And Jesus rolls up. Um, not with a sword, but with a towel, and they're all going, mm, you're washing our feet? That doesn't make sense. I don't get it. You know? And so then this whole gospel, Matthew, is written specifically to say to the Jews, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus is the centre. You know, Matthew 16, 16, but what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, I don't know if you've seen this illustration before, but I think it's a handy one. And that was when um, scientists were trying to work out who was at the centre, uh, you know, all, all the, um, the planets going around the Earth, right? And so Ptolemy, I'll probably pronounce his name wrong because I'm not a scientist, but he came up with this model because he's, he's on the Earth and he's looking at the stars and the sky and he's looking at the sun and the moon and all the planets. And he's trying to work out how it all works, right? So this is the diagram he came up with. And you'll notice that really only the moon and the sun are nice circles because nothing else makes sense. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, what are we going to do with Jupiter? Well, it's kind of, looks like it's, oh, it's going round and round, and so it must be doing funny little orbits somewhere outside. And so there's this really confused model, and they're working really hard to work out how this all works, and this is Ptolemy's best example. But his whole problem was that he came up with the assumption that Earth was in the centre of the universe, and that Earth was the centre, and everything was orbiting around Earth, right? And so it wasn't until, you know, many years later that Copernicus came along and went, hang on, Earth's not in the middle, the sun is, and everything actually, now obviously that's elliptical now, we, we recognise, but his model made sense because he realised that the sun was in the centre, not the Earth. Now, if you ask me, that's the problem with the, with the human heart, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, we think that we're in the centre. We think that this big story is about me, that my life is, is the story and everything revolves around us. And our lives look like this. Oh, can you go backwards on this? Yeah, our lives look like this. You know, nothing's making sense. All these planets are going weird shapes. And you're like, this is just weird because our perspective is that I'm at the centre of the universe when, in fact, it's the sun that's at the centre of the universe. It's Jesus Christ. And when he's in the centre, everything else 
makes sense. Are you with me? So we've got to get our head around the fact that the whole Bible is God's story of, of redeeming man and at the centre of that, of course, is Jesus. Now, what does all this mean for us? Because what tends to happen is we kind of think of this grand story in the Bible and we read about it and we read about the disciples and everything that we've done and it's like, yeah, that was then, that was 2,000 years ago and there was the first century, here's the disciples and stuff. And sometimes we kind of think like the story stops. You know what I mean? It's like God just, you know, he's done his thing now. That here's the centre, Jesus has come and the Bible got finished, you know, fourth century, they put together the canon, um, can't be added to... And so, it's almost as though we think the story has finished, but the story is far from over because you have a part to play in it and the whole the church of Christ right from the beginning is the continuation of this story of God redeeming man. So, have a look at this. Jesus continues to call his disciples. He says, you know, 2,000 years ago, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Today, he's calling you the same thing. He's just saying, follow me... He's not just saying, follow me and we'll hang out and I'll make sure that you go to heaven. He's saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What is a disciple? The first calling of the disciples, be my disciple and you will be fisher of men. You and I are called to be a part of this grand story. We're called to be a part of this big plan that God has of him redeeming man But Jesus makes it clear that being a disciple is not about us. It's not about what we can get from Christ. It's not just about going, oh, make me feel good and bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. It's about follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So God has a plan for you, but his plan for you is to be a part of his overarching plan of salvation. Are you getting the point here? He wants you to join with him in this mission to save the earth. He says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptise them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Look what happens in Acts 1.8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. And this is one of the challenges in the Pentecostal world is we're all gung-ho about receiving the Holy Spirit and we have lots of altar calls and we have lots of people coming down the front, you know, going, Jesus, fill me with your Spirit, which is great and I appreciate the hunger, right? But what's the purpose of Jesus filling us with his spirit? What's the purpose of being filled with Christ? Is it just so we can stand at the front of the church and get a a buzz and come back the next week and go, God, give me another buzz, you know? No. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Why? Because you will be my witnesses. See, God gives us his Holy Spirit because he wants you to reach the lost and you need the Holy Spirit in order to be effective at doing that. Look what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. You know, they speak in tongues and there's no question about what's going on. There's this, you know, wind in the, in the ceiling and, and there's tongues of fire on their heads. You know, it's not like, you know, gee, the Holy Spirit's here today. I'm like, yeah, I think so. Can you feel him? Everybody knew. Do you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? You know, like, sometimes it's real subjective, you know. Gee, the power of God's moving today. And you're going, Really? <laughs> These guys knew, you know, there was no mistake in that the Holy Spirit was moving. I mean, the crowd knew. It wasn't just whether or not you were standing at the front and you were ultra-spiritual and could feel what God was doing. Everybody knew. There were tongues of fire on people's heads. All of a sudden, these guys start preaching in languages that they've never spoken before. Everyone's hearing the gospel in their own language. 
And 3,000 are added to their number that day because the Holy Spirit empowers you not just to feel good, not just to be saved, but to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's exactly what happens. So here's the beautiful thing, right? We've got this promise to Abram right at the beginning of the Bible that I will bless you and through you, you will be a blessing to the whole world. And in Galatians 3... Bible tells us we are co-heirs in that. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what does that mean? It means that this promise to Abraham that you will be a blessing is now available to us. We're a part of this same heritage We're a part of this big picture story of God redeeming man which started with Abraham and it's still going now and he's saying you are a co-heir in this picture. You're a part of God redeeming man. We're grafted into this great story. So we have a role in the story but the question is what is it? 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20 shed some light of this. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against him, and he was committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, this big picture story that's going on, you and I have a role in it. We're called to be ambassadors for God, to to reconcile the world to God. We've got this ministry of reconciliation, finding someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who's like those hands, you know, sinking in the water, wallowing in their sin, unaware of the big picture of, of who Jesus is, and we're saying we reconcile you to Jesus Christ. Open their eyes to see the man who can save their life. You and I have this ministry of reconciliation. Are you with me? You getting this? Now, there's a little kid with chicken, chicken pox. I was on grade 7 camp a couple of weeks ago and the uh, second day some kid had chicken pox. Now, when you're in Canberra and the kid has chicken pox, you know you're in for a long week. <laughs> so uh, we did manage to cover him in some sort of pine tassel or something and send him on the plane home. Um, but, you know, it's been going through the school and big drama, but... Little story, right? When I was about grey, oh, I was probably about seven or eight years old, I got this infection. And I don't know if you know anything about seven-year-old boys, but an infection's pretty fun if it's infectious. Uh, if you know you can touch someone else and they're going to get it, <laughs> that's good news. And when you've got three sisters, it's even better news. So, you know, the infection started off not being very serious, but got worse and worse and worse. And... Uh, you know, I could chase my sisters around with it and, you know, get in trouble with mum, big deal. But the infection, you know, it's, it would spread, so, you know, can't touch anyone, yada, yada. But it got more and more serious and I have to have blood tests and all of that. And, you know, it becomes something that was quite threatening. So, the story's going on. Now, I got the infection from someone else who had the same infection. And so, you know, the whole time... And I've actually never gotten rid of the infection, but it's not, well, still contagious, but I'll tell you about it in a minute, it all makes sense. But um, the infection kept going and kept going, got it from someone else, and 
it's kind of like when my, my body is, is physically strong and well, when I'm strong, uh, the infection is weak. When the infection is strong, then it becomes an issue for me. Now, this infection that I'm talking about is a Christ infection. You see, I come to know Jesus when I was about, grade, you know, about seven or eight years old. I got infected with this message of Jesus, this person who could save me, right? And it's infectious. And we're called to spread this infection around, right? But the more serious it gets, the less of me there is and the more there is of him. But the more of me there is, the more there is of me and the less there is of him. And you see, God is calling you and I to get a Christ infection and spread it like chicken pox. Silly illustration, but you get the point. So I wasn't actually sick in the physical sense, just, just for the record. Okay, sorry guys. Uh, I'm not contagious in a physical way. <laughs> um, so God is calling us to have a Christ infection and to spread it around. C.S. Lewis said he came to the world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. It's hoping that this infection is going to get so serious in me that I die, it's no longer me that lives, but it's Christ that lives in me, and that everyone I come in contact with is impacted with the life of Christ. Amen? Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, gee, I'm not a famous minister and I haven't brought thousands of people to the Lord, and we are getting near the end. But I want you to understand something, right? There's lots and lots of characters in God's story, and there's lots of cameo roles. You can kind of think, well, I'm not a very important person in in the grand history of things, and, you know, I'm just a school chaplain, you know, or whatever you do, and you can sort of think, I'm not that important, right? But it's your faithfulness in every day of your life that can be the difference for literally thousands of people. And you have no idea what difference your life is making when you're honouring God. Two faces here, right? You'll know the one on the right. Billy Graham. Anyone know the one on the left? No? Okay. Now, Billy Graham is famous because, what, how many people would have come to Christ through Billy Graham? Like, literally, probably millions, is there? I mean, I know people that were converted in Billy Graham crusades, you know. Now, they're not the same age as me, uh, just quietly. But um, I mean, this guy made a huge impact on America and pretty much everywhere he went saw revival, right? The guy on the left, is, his name is Mordecai Ham, and he was responsible for bringing Billy Graham to Christ. So you might be thinking, well, my, my life's not very important. I'm just Mordecai Ham. Who knows Mordecai? You know, he's not very memorable sort of a fella. But, man, he's responsible for bringing Billy to, to Christ, and Billy is responsible for literally thousands of people hearing the gospel. So every day, every interaction you have with every person is actually important and can bear incredible fruit that you have no idea about. He is ju- his role is just as important as Billy's Joel. Do you know what I mean? And for some of you, it's actually raising your kids to know Jesus Christ and your kids will actually be the ones. And so it's important to get perspective there. All right, let's wrap this up. You are part of God's plan. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God's plan is to redeem mankind to himself, to reconcile himself uh, to us who have fallen in our sin. And he's been doing that since the fall. Ever since Genesis 3, we're separated from God. It's God redeeming man, God redeeming man, God redeeming man. Think about this for a minute. What is really important? What actually matters in life? What's the most important thing you can do for someone else? What really matters? What can we take 
to heaven with us? What on this earth will be taken with us to the next? God is asking for your help today in his mission to save mankind. He's redeeming man, but he wants you to do it with him. He wants all of us to do it with him. And I just want to finish with this thought. Let's not be guilty of what Dallas Willard would call the great omission, where Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And we're busy being good people, coming to church on Sundays and doing home group on Wednesday. And, you know, we make sure that we don't, you know, get drunk and have sex before marriage and don't say any swear words. But Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. And sometimes we think about sin and we think the only thing to worry about is making sure I don't do the wrong thing. I better not do the wrong thing because that might offend God. And God's saying, go make disciples. And we're like, yeah, I've just got to worry about this, you know, issue over here. I'm, you know, I'm struggling with this issue. Our sin is not just what we don't do. Uh, it's, not, it's not just the things that we do that God has asked us not to. It's the things that God has asked us to do that we refuse to do because we've got too much pride or we're too busy or, you know, God says this and we're like, yeah, I, I, well, I'm, you know, I'm busy. You know what I mean? God's plan for the, for the world is to redeem mankind. He's asking you to help us. He says directly and specifically, make disciples of all nations. He calls his disciples because he wants you to be a fisher of man. We just need to be obedient and say, let's reach the lost because that's what Jesus is telling us to. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have a plan and that your plan is because you love us, you want to save us, you want to save us from ourselves, from our sin, from our helplessness and hopelessness that we are without you. And God, I pray for the project, God, for every person here this morning that you would give us a real desire to reach the lost. God, a desire to speak the name of Jesus wherever we go, a desire to be faithful to you. Father, that you would, I pray that you would open opportunities for every person sitting here today to share the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for opportunity for evangelism, opportunity after opportunity. I pray that you would grow your kingdom through this church. Father, that the project would not only grow from Christians that have come from other churches, but Father, we would start to see an influx of people who have never heard the name of Jesus come into this church and meet you for the first time and give their lives to you and become disciples. Father, I thank you for what you're going to do in this church. In the name of Jesus, amen.